Welcome to Dad Rocks, a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. Hello and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm your host, Josh, and today's show is one of a three-part mini-series on a very personal subject for me, my father, David Frisch. So if you're not interested in hearing about my dad, feel free to skip these episodes. But I do hope you stick around, as this was an important project for me to undertake, as you'll soon hear. If you've been a regular listener of this show, you'll know that my father was a huge influence on my life in almost every way possible. But music was probably the biggest influence my dad had on me. From the music he played in the house and in the car, to taking me to shows, to encouraging me to play music, and then eventually finding ways for my bands to perform, he had a major impact on the musical part of my life. Though he never took any formal music lessons, he had the gift of having a musical ear and taught himself how to play harmonica, then guitar, and later the dobro. On top of all of that, he was a great singer and could harmonize with almost anyone. And he loved playing music, whether in an informal jam or a scheduled gig or just for my brother and I. Music was what made him truly happy, and it was a major outlet for him, especially after a long day's work in his chiropractic practice. So why am I choosing to do this three-part mini-series on him now? Well, on February 13th, 2003, my father passed away from a heart attack, making today, if you're listening to this podcast on the day that it was released, the 20th anniversary of his death. I figured now was as good a time as any to talk to people whom my dad played music with throughout his life. The way I initially approached this was to break his performing career into three eras. His time with his high school band Powdered Milk in the late 60s, his time with the almost original synthetic urban swamp grass jug band in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and then later in the few years before his death, and his time with the band The Old Man Jam in the mid to late 90s. While my initial approach was to do something in some chronological order, two of the conversations cover multiple time periods of my dad's life, so I decided to release all three episodes at the same time and let the listener decide how they wanted to listen to the episodes. On this episode, I discuss my dad's high school band, Powdered Milk, with his former bandmate, Jack Schwartz. Though I heard Jack's name in many conversations when my dad talked about his band, this was actually the first time I had ever talked to Jack. As you'll hear in the conversation, Jack moved to California during his college years and did not keep in touch with his buddies back in New Jersey while he was working in the music industry, specifically for Fantasy Records. For that reason, Jack wasn't even on my radar to talk about my dad's high school playing days. The only reason I even got in contact with Jack was that another guest in this miniseries, Glenn Taylor, mentioned that he had Jack's number and would reach out to him for me. I thank Glenn so much for that. It was honestly great to talk to Jack and to hear stories about my dad, their band, and some of the shows they saw together, and also to learn about Jack's career in the music industry. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jack Schwartz. Um, 
So since I, I literally know almost nothing about you, especially in your, uh, you know, your adult life, can you just uh, quickly give a, a, a bio of, you know, uh, who you are, what you did? Sure. Uh, grew up in Passaic and Clifton. Um, always had a love of music. And I found out early in my life that I had, I was able to play by ear. And I think that's the biggest gift God has ever given me, the ability to play by ear. I still play almost every day. In the band, I was playing bass because George was a better guitar player than I was, and I didn't want to play rhythm. So I learned how to play bass. All through the band years, I played bass, but bass is a difficult instrument to play by yourself. So I did learn to play guitar all along the way. And it is, to this day, therapy for me. Uh, playing is something I need to do or I'm not a good person. <laughs> I understand that. So. And uh, being in the band was, uh, the band went through a lot, of, a lot of development. We had a number of people in the band, but the core, bass drums, keyboards, uh, guitar, and your dad as the lead singer and and harp player yeah. uh stayed very stable but we had horns at one time we had a horn section mm. and this was when blood sweat and tears in chicago had just come out and the thing that held us all together was we all loved the blues mm. and everything came from there and i still believe in that um, your dad and I were very close and along with Charlie, everybody in the band was close. Um, George, the lead guitar player who was an, an, a great improviser. Uh, he was always a little bit on the fringe. He wasn't as close with everybody else. And although I still am occasionally in touch with George, uh, he has now a jazz podcast oh, wow. that he does. I don't know whether it's twice a month or weekly. I think it's more like once or twice a month. And I have no doubt that if he kept it up, he's a phenomenal guitar player to this. I would assume if he kept it up, he's got to be a phenomenal guitar player. Mm. But playing with your dad, I was... I learned how to play with others. I learned how to play my instrument. We learned the best thing was learning to listen to one another. And the fact that you have a podcast about dad rock, um, I was the first one in my family with any musical um, direction. Mm. And I, I taught my son. Lost you there for a minute. Who, Adam is now 32 years old. I taught Adam to play guitar, and he is living in Boston. Excuse me, he's in New York City now, hmm. and married, and has been into metal his whole life. Oh, I, I, I missed that. Sorry, <laughs> you, 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 you. you uh, yeah, I lost you. So you said he was into metal. Is that right? Is that? Did I hear that correctly? We just, it just uh, uh, glitched glitched for a second yeah i was saying my son is into metal yeah his his whole life and i think it was a mm. rebellion 
against the music <laughs> loved. But uh, he's actually gotten really good at it. He can play things I couldn't even begin to play. His speed with his right hand is unbelievable, but I am a little concerned about his hearing. <laughs> <laughs> because that's, that's um, and one of the things after, after I graduated high school, I was in school for a couple of years in Washington, D.C. Uh, law is in my family. Mm -hmm. And although I was never fully sold on it, I did go to school as a political science major, and I quickly added a music minor. Hmm. And in the middle of my junior year, I came home and told my parents, I can't do this law thing. It's not me. I'm moving to California to be in the music business. Oh, wow. So that was when I was about 20, almost 21 years old. And I moved to California. I had been going out to California for summertime and for winter breaks to work in the, in the warehouse at Fantasy Records. Oh, you're the, so I got a question for you later on, because you may be the, the linchpin to this, this, this lingering questions, which we'll I'll get to later. We'll get that. to that. So <laughs> I started out in the warehouse and hung out by the studio doors and let them know I was interested in learning to be an audio engineer or back in the record business, they would call it a, a mixer. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, after I came home and told my parents I was going out to California, I went out to California, transferred to UC San Diego, which at the time was the only school in the country that had an electronics and a music program combined oh, wow. to teach people how to be mixers and to teach people about electronics. So I went to school there and then I was offered a job in the sound department at Fantasy Records. And I ended up being a staff mixer up there for 10 years. Went through the Credence Clearwater thing. I was just going to ask, gonna ask about that. <laughs> first session I ever worked on was a Credence Clearwater Holy session. Moly. And I was a gopher. All I did was move amps around and listen yeah. to John Fogarty. Uh, but it was <laughs> an education. But while I was at Fantasy, the great thing about Fantasy, it was three labels. Fantasy, Prestige. Mm -hmm and yep. Milestone, which were both jazz labels. Right, right. So in my 10 years there, I got to work with fantastic, top-of-the-line jazz musicians. Cannonball Adam, McCoy Tyner, Sonny Rollins, oh, um, Hubert Laws, on and on and on. Uh, Burrell worked on a number of albums of his. And it made me realize that I was never going to be a professional musician in that sense. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the talent those guys had. And I would come home from doing sessions and I had a difficult time picking up my guitar because I wasn't at that level. Yeah. And although, you know, music is not a competitive thing, I wanted to be the best I could. And uh, working at Fantasy was an education that unmatched unmatched and in 1979 i moved down to la because there was more rock and roll happening in la mm -hmm. and that was another 15 years in the record business as an independent and i also worked at some on staff at some studios in la 
and went through all of that rock and roll period in Los Angeles uh, that was now referred to as classic rock. Mm-hmm. When, um, when the music changed and disco came in and new music started to come in that wasn't as, it didn't hit my heart as much. I got into the union and started to do sound for television and film, Ooh, which, lasted nice. in the, which lasted another 20 years. So I had a, about a 35-year career as a sound mixer, and um, I wouldn't change it for a minute. It, was, it never was work. I would wake up in the morning happy to go to the studio. It was different every day. I felt blessed that I was getting paid to do what I love to do. Mm-hmm. And it was wonderful. So that That's was, awesome. and I kept at it until about, till about the year 2000. And then I got tired of being in rooms without windows <laughs> and I wanted to save my hearing. Yeah. And, uh, and made a change at that point. Nice. That's, that's, I mean, I, and then uh, I, I think you went, I don't, I don't want to assume, but I saw somewhere that you went to, I guess, finance, finance at that point or financials or something like that. Were you working for Morgan Stanley or something? I did the last, uh, I retired about a year and a half ago, but I, uh, my financial advisor, when I made the change away from, from the arts, my financial advisor um, knew that I was interested and somehow he saw some aptitude and he t- and I had an offer from another firm and I went to Ben and I asked him, what do you think? And he basically said, it's not a bad offer, but I'd rather see you come to Morgan Stanley. <laughs> and if you can prove yourself, we'll be partners. Oh, wow. And that's what happened. So I was at Morgan Stanley for 15 years. It wasn't like being in the studio. It wasn't as gratifying. It didn't feel... I didn't get up every day raring to get to work and having it different every day, Uh, but it made my retirement much more comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) I get that. I'm a public school teacher. So, you know, one of those things where we, uh, you know, I I made a a choice to have a a healthier work-life balance, but, you know, and hopefully a pension later on. We'll see in New Jersey that that's that's questionable at the moment, (laughs) you know, and, and and. I mean, that's that's an amazing, you know, just your story is, is amazing because, it, it again, there's going to be a point that I'm going to come to later uh, regarding what my dad told me. Uh, and, you know, maybe it is true about what happened to you guys uh, after high school. But um, so the first thing I want to ask you was, um, you know, since you, you live out in California and, you know, at the time we had cell phones, but they there was texting wasn't wasn't around. Um, you know, 20 years ago when you, you, how, how did you hear about, uh, my father's passing? From my brother, my brother lives in North Caldwell. Oh, okay. And he called me and told me, uh, I guess he read about it. Uh, and he told me what happened yeah. and, um, I did send a card with a note. Um, and it, it, as I said, it really affected me. Uh, One of the mistakes I made when I moved to California is I didn't keep up with my friends back east as much as I should have. Mm -hmm. 
So there was a number of years when I just wasn't in touch with your dad. And when that happened, it made me realize, uh, it made me realize the fragility of life. Mm -hmm. And I never let that happen again. Yeah. I learned a lesson because I, I, I felt horrible. Yeah, I know the feel. It's just that's one of the things that I learned from my father too, because he kept, you know, granted, you know, life. It's hard. I, I'm realizing that now. Like some of my best friends from college, you know, I went to University of Maryland, um, just like him. And uh, but yeah. uh, you know, one of my best friends lives in Southern Virginia. Our sons are six days apart. When we never get together, they have a great time. And but I, you know, we we don't. It's hard to see each other. But I make it a point. I mean, it's a lot easier now to stay connected. But I call him like we, we have a phone conversation every month. Um, I try to stay in contact with, you know, all my friends um, because, you know, I I realize how important, you know, that stuff is. And, you know, that was the one thing that, you know, I learned from my father is that, you know, having strong connections to family and friends is is extremely important. Um, and not much know, more important than that. Yeah. 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 And, and you have to put the you have to put the, the work in, in to to keep those alive. I mean, you know, uh, I just re recently reconnected with a buddy at our 20th. Uh, I guess it was a 21st high school reunion. Um, and he you know, we, we actually came on the podcast a couple of times and we were just talking and, you know, reliving playing music back when we were middle school and high school together. And, um, you know. It's just good to, you know, even if it's not constant, every once in a while, just keeping keeping that connection open is is so important because you never know when you're going to need someone or you might be traveling and you're like, hey, I'm in town. You want to get together and it rekindles something. So, you yeah. know, and that's, you know, that, that was another question I was going to ask is when was the last time you and my father either talk or saw each other? Josh, I hate to say it, but it's it was far too long. Uh, when I would come home, uh, I would get together with David and Charlie uh, and Andy. But boy, it was uh, probably in the 80s that I last spoke with your dad. Mm -hmm. So your dad passed around 2003. Yep. Uh, um, so that was, uh, again, one of those things that I could have done a better job. It's interesting where life takes you and how life, you know, comes back around. But obviously, you, you know, I, I really wish that he had stayed alive. You know, obviously, I wish he was still alive today for uh, for tons of different reasons. But it would have been really interesting to see if he had lived at least until you know your generation got on Facebook. How many connections he would have? How many people he would have re reconnected with, and maybe. Yeah who knows what would have uh, happened in terms of maybe powdered milk would have gotten together and played one more gig. I don't know. You know, <laughs> well, um, I know. I'm still in touch with Andy very often. We're pretty close. In yeah. fact, our, our mothers were in the delivery room together. I was oh, wow. born on February 28th. Uh, another guy from Passaic, Greg Masters, was born on February 29th. It was leap year that year. Mm. And Andy was born on March 1st. So he's my oldest friend. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and we're still in touch. I did get together with Charlie. Oh, it's probably about 12 or 15 years ago. And Charlie's just not interested in music at all anymore. Yeah. 
I yeah, that was, was really surprised. That was the one thing I remember my dad saying, you know, having he and my dad were close and like I, I yeah, you know, we yeah. knew we knew the families growing up like he and uh, myself and his daughter Megan played when we were younger. But, you know, as we got older, not not as much. Um, but, you know, that was the one thing I was always like, oh, Charlie played music like, you know, he never my dad never seemed to go to concerts with him, never seemed to like he never came out to any gig. It was just kind of. You know, I mean, people yeah. change and stuff. Um, but you know, oh, Josh, always... did, did your dad go to? Uh, was your dad at Woodstock? I was going to ask you about Woodstock. I he Good. this well, yeah, and we could talk about it now. So because so since you brought it up, so that was the one thing, one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Um, and we'll, we can get to the concerts later. You know what? Let's get to the because there's a bunch of questions I have, and I want to see if you know about them. Sure. But yeah, he 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 was at Woodstock, but he kind of wasn't at Woodstock. So <laughs> I wanted to ask you about what happened with that. Um, so. Did you grow so uh, I was because I was looking at at, fa at your Facebook. Did you grow up? Did you live in Clifton or did you live in Passaic uh, when you were a teen or did you? Where did you grow up? Because um, I know I'm assuming you went to Hebrew school together or you or you are you Jew? I'm assuming you're Jewish. Yes, right. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I'm assuming you guys went to the same synagogue, same Hebrew school. I just didn't know if you went to school together as well. Well, I was born in Passaic, lived on Harrison Street until. Uh, I guess I was about eight years old when we moved to Clifton, mm -hmm. uh, uh, off Passaic Avenue in Clifton, but I always maintained my friendships from Passaic and, um, somehow we put a band together from people both in both Passaic and Clifton. Hmm. Now, I, and yeah, I, cause I, I, you know, I know my dad always talked about he was in, you know, with, uh, I guess, either Hebrew score or they, they had a, um, a youth group, a Jewish youth group and stuff like that. So I don't know if that's yeah. how you guys kept to, uh, we, Probably friends. we were in day camp together, the yeah. Y day camp. And um, yeah, we spent a lot of time hanging out and having fun. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've heard some stories, but what was my dad like as a as a kid, as a teenager? <laughs> Well, your dad was, I'm trying to make, put this in perspective. Uh, <laughs> your dad and Charlie both had older siblings. Right. Whereas me and Andy and George were the oldest. So we would always, we would learn a lot from them simply because they had older siblings and were able to have experiences and be able to, watch their siblings make mistakes mm -hmm. uh but, but they uh your dad was um he always had a real level head on his shoulders and when things were getting crazy in the 60s your dad never let it get your dad was always in control your dad was always in control and never allowed things to get out of hand he was the he was one of the level-headed ones hmm. uh, within the group, and although let's see, everyone in the group was Jewish, <laughs> um, and I don't think any of us were were really really crazy, but everybody was experimenting in so many different ways back then, and your dad was always pretty cautious. He was always hmm. had a level head on his shoulders. Interesting. I, that was one thing that I did learn later because he was uh, <laughs> he uh, 
he claimed that he never he stopped smoking after chiropractic or when he got to chiropractic school, and then I found out later he never he never stopped smoking weed until he passed away. <laughs> it was, it was interesting. One, yeah, it was interesting. Like, and that was it was my mom told me later on that that yeah he, you know because um, he did a very good job of uh, hiding that from us because he never did it around us at all, and he would always abstain from you know he would drink every once you know he would drink but he wouldn't like turn down everything else. So that was, I did, in front of him. I did the same thing raising my kids to this day. I smoke pot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, as far as I'm concerned, it's be, I'm better off with it. Yeah. It calms me down. It makes me more patient. I don't lose my temper as I don't lose my temper, yeah. but I'm talking about a couple of couple, three puffs before yeah. I go to bed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, it was just it was more of those things, you know, that he I know that later on in college and stuff that he experimented. But it's, it's good. You know, I from where when I was growing up, he always seemed to be like that, like you said, level headed, thoughtful, you know, conscious. And even the fact that he was thoughtful about how he acted around myself and my brother and other people like in front of his family, that's you know, that tells me, you know, that, that, that it makes sense, you know, what, what you're saying. Um so, you know, it, it, that's it's great to hear. Um, and so how did the band start? How did what would become Powdered Milk start? Boy, that's a tough one. I know that um, your dad. I don't think Charlie, but I think your dad was playing a lot of music with Robbie Gable. Yes, they, that's they it. lived on the across block, the street. Right? They lived, I think they either cross the street or next to each other or something like that. But yeah, right. And uh, Robbie. um um, Robbie had a lot of different really nice instruments <laughs> and uh, uh, somehow maybe it was through the why I'm trying to remember some of this mm -hmm. stuff Josh but somehow we all got together and Robbie didn't really fit in mm. with the musical direction and the, the one thing that was amazing was how quickly we all picked it up. Hmm. We would every week we would go down to the record store in Passaic and look at the new albums that had just been released every week. We went as a group and everybody would buy something different. And we go home and we listen to it. And then we get together as a group and say, check this out. And then we learned it. Hmm. And we developed really quickly. Uh, so somehow um, Robbie was no longer in the scene. And just the, the central group of us, the five of us, were really, really dedicated to learning how to play our instruments hmm. and play in a group. And... Um, I think we all learned a lot about um, we all learned a lot about life in terms of being in a group and learning how to get along and share and not letting one person take over. But we all had input into what we were going to play and how it was going to be played, and uh, it was a, it was a great experience. Powdered milk. To this day, I think back on it and the battle of the bands and the sweet 16s and the and the school and the college uh, uh, dances that we would play. Uh, and um, 
I think I'm I'm listening in in my head. I think we were pretty good. <laughs> I do remember we went into the studio once. And this is what happened that made me realize I wanted to be a sound mixer. We went in the studio and we cut, did a song and went into the control room to take a listen. And it sounded horrible. <laughs> and I knew we sounded better than that because yeah. I could hear us in the room. I knew we sounded better than that. And I looked at the console in front of me and I looked at the tape machine and I, I, I looked around and I said to myself, I know we're better than this. If I've got to learn, the problem is in here in the control mm -hmm. room. If I've got to learn this, I will. And I ended up learning it, and I found out that I was probably better at it than playing guitar. Yeah. And it, it became a profession. Nice. And to this day, I love being in the studio. Yeah. I still feel like I could do a tracking date. <laughs> uh, but that, that was it. I do remember us going in the studio the first time and it not sounding as good as I thought we were. But I've got, I remember the articles in the Herald News about us playing Battle of the Bands and things like that. And a lot of bar mitzvahs. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you have, uh, so I, I had asked Charlie this a few years ago. Do you have any memorabilia, any pictures, anything from the group? Because my dad didn't have anything. So, and he, Charlie said he, the only thing he had was a picture of him and my dad, which he sent of them as teenagers. Uh, so I didn't know if you had any pictures from that era. What I have, I don't have any pictures, but I do have our business card and I have a couple of articles from the Herald magazine about us playing in the Battle of Bands at Clifton. Oh, wow. Um, so I will get copies of that to you. Great. That, thank you I, so I much. Wish, I wish I had pictures or tapes or something. You, so you guys never took home the, the, uh, the tape from that recording session? You just threw it through it? I don't know what happened <laughs> to it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I should have to have that. <laughs> I've got a garage of, of two inch tapes and tapes of, of groups that I worked with over the years. I've got yeah. tapes of, of, uh, I've got a lot of tapes in my garage. Yeah. I just don't know what to do with, I don't yeah. know what, you know, there's no value. I don't think. Yeah. But, well, you I know, mean, it's, I, it's I wish good. I had a tape of, uh, of powdered milk. Yeah, but you know, back then technology wasn't as as available. Right. As no, I understand. Yeah, yeah. And now I, you know, for me, I I keep everything. Like I just, I'm a pack rat in that way. Like videos, just recordings, everything that I've ever done. I'm just like, I just keep it in a file. Like I have, uh, I remember sending uh, when my band from high school and college, we did like a a small reunion show, one off. We were going through like material, and I just found all of these like old random uh recordings that we just did in in, the, in our basement and yeah um, you know it's it's fun to go back and look on um so you were one, saying one thing i do remember about your dad you know we would i do remember there was one day we went down to the record store and the first led zeppelin album had just come out and i bought it i went home and i listened to it and the next day we had a rehearsal and i brought it in and i said this record is unbelievable. <laughs> we need to learn communication breakdown. And the following week, we went. We all went to the Fillmore, to the oh, Fillmore th East. I, I, this is this. <laughs> and and the Fillmore, if I remember, it was Blue Cheer and Special Guest. 
And the special guest came on first. And we were sitting near the front. And the curtains went up and they started to play communication breakdown. And it was special guest was Led Zeppelin. Mm. And we knew the song already. We had already learned yeah. it. <laughs> it was us. Great well, memories. Let yeah. me, I got to ask, since you brought that up, this was the question I was going to ask later. And I was about shows, but you know what? You brought it up and I, so my dad always told the story and actually Andy Polner, uh, he, he did, uh, verify this. Were you with them at the show that they walked out on Led Zeppelin? Because my dad claims that he 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 saw Led Zeppelin maybe at MSG on after their second album, and walked out on them and could never listen to them again because they were so bad. No, I was not at that show. I was probably by that point I'm probably out in California already. Okay, because yeah, because my because wow, uh, I'm shocked. And, yeah, I mean you got to ask Andy about it because um like I will I. I tell this to everyone and they're like, really? Like I grew up never listening. To, I, I grew up having uh, this negative um, feelings towards Zeppelin because I always idolized my dad. Whenever, you know, he always he influenced me a lot. Right. And anytime we heard Zeppelin on the radio, he switched the station and, and turn, he, he was very wow. he was very like he held grudges. <laughs> it was very interesting. <laughs> but he, he always said how bad they were. So I didn't really get into them till. Actually, it took until I listened to the Black Crows and Jimmy Page doing, a, you know, that that live album that they did to, and then right. got into Zeppelin that way, kind of. Um, and so I, I didn't know if you were there, and I, but I guess he saw them. I mean, I guess he, he must have been there, too, at the at the Fillmore. Or, I mean, I mean maybe, I don't know, because I feel like if he had seen them twice and maybe he would have known how I don't know. Maybe he was not at the Fillmore um, yeah. that time. But, you know, I have a, a friend of mine is a professional musician, and we were together a couple of weeks ago. And somehow, um, somehow Jimmy Page came up. Mm. And he said, oh, I can't stand listening to him. He's always, he the, the tuning, and, and he's sloppy. He's a sloppy guitar player. That's what my dad said, too, about him. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, everyone... It's, <laughs> He, my dad always said that Jimmy Page and Pete Townsend were were better rhythm guitar players than they were uh, li, li, lead players. He said they were rhythm guitar players trying to be lead players. Well, that's what I mean, that's what his take that. was. Ma, Pat and I went to see The Who about a month ago at the Hollywood Bowl mm -hmm. with a full orchestra. And yes, Pete Townsend is only a rhythm guitar player. <laughs> In fact, the first time I went to the Fillmore, The Who was the 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 lead act and they started to play my generation and townsend's guitar strap broke <laughs> the guitar fell to the floor and the solo kept playing <laughs> no one talks about that stuff and that was like 1968 69 oh, wow and i was shocked i was so disappointed oh, but wow. at the hollywood ball um uh lead singer he can Daltrey, yeah. Daltrey can still sing yeah and with the orchestra it was a great concert but townsend is is known for his yeah. he's he he started the power chord yeah that's what what i think of when i think of townsend yeah i mean that my dad liked the who he he made sure we he we, i remember him buy, re, uh, buying live at leeds on cd and he always he would just blast it in the car all the time and stuff like that well and, let me ask you uh 
um, both my kids, I have a son, I have a son, Adam's 32, my daughter's your age. And neither of them like The Who. Interesting. They do like some stuff from my age, but nobody their age, none of their friends, none of them like The Who at all. I never got it. I never understood. I I mean, I was... I mean, I'm not like a huge, huge Who fan, but like I definitely like their stuff, you know, especially up through, you know, uh, the the mid 70s stuff and definitely like, you know, Who's Next, Tommy, uh, Live at Leeds, that era, especially the yeah. early 70s stuff. I mean, I was also, like I said, most of the stuff my father played for us, you know, I like I, you know, I took to heart i was like oh my if dad likes it then you know it's good um that was my my no. my th- feeling um you know my we, brother's actually uh a professional he's in an edm group he's a professional dj essentially and he they uh what is that in Vegas stand tonight. for so electronic dance music oh, um okay. he was much more open-minded than i was like he took in everything and hmm. i was much more like you know whereas you know, like I said, like I didn't listen to Zeppelin till I was, you know, m- much older than I probably should have been listening to, you know, or should have been like a teenager. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Pink Floyd. And my dad wasn't a big Pink Floyd fan either. So I didn't get get uh, hip to them till much later. Um, One thing I remember about your dad was when it came, uh, everybody would bring in the music that they wanted the band to learn. Mm-hmm. And your dad was more outside than than many of us in the hmm. sense that he brought in Zappa. <laughs> I was going to ask him because, yeah, we played I, still, Zappa. I still have his uh, Hot Rats uh, vinyl. Uh, his, um, so, you know, he was, yeah, he tried, he got me a little bit. I could, you know, Zappa is Zappa. And, you know, he tried to get us into Zappa. I think for me, when he showed us uh, 200 motels, that kind of like, I, I put Zappa in the back. <laughs> it yeah. was just too much for me, uh, especially it's a t- as a teenager. It's a tough yeah. one. To this day, it's a tough one. Yeah. When I, when I lived in the Hollywood Hills, Zappa was a neighbor. Mm-hmm. And I would hear the music all the time. And I have a number of friends that have played and, and been mixers for Zappa. And he had a wonderful reputation. And yeah. he was a much better guitar player than most people realize. Oh, yeah. That the far, documentary far ahead of his time there. That documentary that that came out about him was very, very eye opening and, and interesting and, and, you know, and, and really cool. Um, yeah. I what, yeah. Um, so, you know, going back to the band a little bit, you know, my dad always said he like, you know, really never had too much musical talent in terms of like he didn't play any instruments till much later, you know, I guess in his 20s. So he just play, he just sang. He said, play tambourine. And did he play harmonica at that young age? Because I know he really didn't get into it too much until college. But um, he was just starting. He was just starting. And I think we did a lot of blues. We did a lot of blues projects. And he would play that. I mean, playing blues, that's how most harpists start. Yeah. Uh, was, play, was playing blues harp. And he did some of that with us. Hmm. But your dad had some of the some of the best innate talent he was he was he sang he had a great ear he had a great ear yeah he had a great ear he really sang well and um and i'm not surprised that he got into playing an instrument the way he did i've heard so much from andy and mm. uh, about and from glenn yeah who i've gotten to be close with glenn's told me so much about what it was playing 
uh, what it was like playing with the coots. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so I guess he, he was not the typical front man. He was, he was, you guys were like a, a unit. Um, was there any, was he, or were, or were any of you like the leader of the group or um, in terms of, or who did the bookings and all that kind of stuff? We had a manager. Uh, oh, wow. Teddy. I'll think of his name might be on the business card, <laughs> but we actually had a manager uh, who, you know, he was just a friend of somebody's and he would book us. And he would handle all of that. Oh, wow. There was, I don't think there really was a leader. I think that we all, uh, we all added something. Uh, some of us may have been a little bit more vocal, probably me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, but we all contributed. There wasn't someone who was, it wasn't someone's group. Yeah. Not at all. That's, that's good to hear. I, cause you know, uh, being in bands myself growing up is it was always you know we didn't have and that was one thing i was going to ask too is you know i don't out in california might have been different for i don't know if your kids obviously it's your son plays music um but growing up for for me at least in the time that i was growing up my brother got in on the punk scene so it was a little bit easier for him to mm -hmm. find gigs but we couldn't find gigs anywhere um and like you know there was my dad pretty much had to create opportunities for us to play. Um, yeah. Like he, he was involved in the local street fairs, like through the rotary. And, right. you know, he got us to play every street fair cause he ran the music stage. He knew someone else who ran that music stage. So he got us to play there. And then he created a battle of bands at my high school a few years before I even got to high school, because he's like, these kids have nowhere to play. Let's create something. Um, and then eventually, you know, of course, once I got to college, then things started opening back up and now there's you know there's there's some places to play but you couldn't play anywhere unless you were 21 at the time uh, um yeah and but so what was i mean obviously you guys had a manager you said you mentioned before all these gigs that you played mm -hmm. what was the scene like were there a lot of other bands were you like the only band i know glenn taylor had his own band but they were much young they were you know he was three years, years younger than younger. you guys yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, there were, I mean, it was the beginning of, a, of the garage band scene when rock and roll really, you know, when it took over the airwaves, everybody started learning how to play guitar mm -hmm. and had their garage bands. And, um, there was, uh, it was competitive now that I think about it. And we were, we were lucky because we played a variety of stuff because all every member was coming in with their different influences to present to the band mm -hmm. and the band would pick and choose what they wanted to learn so it covered everything from from paul butterfield to uh uh to to poppy stuff mm -hmm. to um to motown we did a lot of Motown, mm -hmm. which was great for dance. Yeah, and garage still is bands, great for dance. <laughs> the, the garage bands, most of those garage bands were very narrow casted in terms of the type of music they played. We played a lot of stuff. We played improvisational. I don't want to call it jazz, but it was beyond one, four, five chords. Mm -hmm. And we had horns at one point. We were doing Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Chicago. And your dad came in with a band from Chicago called the Colwell Winfield Blues Band. 
I never heard of them. So <laughs> to this day, it sounds great. I think I still may have the vinyl. Let I'm looking at my vinyl right here in the living room. You said um, the co- the Colwell or Colwell's, Colwell? C-O-L-W-E-L-L, Winfield Blues Band. And no, I see and, them. They are they are on Spotify, which yep. I will check that out. And if I remember, it was your dad who came in with that, and we started playing that stuff. So we played uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, and we played My Girl, and then we would play, um, uh, then we would play Zappa, <laughs> and and, we- and, uh, and a variety of other stuff, and everything else that was on the air, including The Who, mm-hmm. and, and everything. And was were great. you guys playing like every weekend? Pretty much, if I and, remember. Uh, we this were- was... Like you were like sophomores, juniors, seniors. How old were you guys when you were playing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were. Uh, let's see. Your dad and Charlie were year, are a year older than me and Andy and George. Mm-hmm. But we played even when those guys graduated high school. We continued to play in our senior year in high school mm. because they didn't go away to school. If I remember, they were home. Well, Charlie was uh, home. My dad, my dad was at the University of Maryland, so I don't that's know. That's right. If... That's that's right. Your dad did go to Maryland, but I do remember when he came home, we'd still play. Oh, that's awesome. And um, uh, and it was great because because our ears were open. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to just be a, a white teenage rock and roll band. Right. Uh, we wanted to, you know, the, the black musicians from Detroit. Were, I learned more from them than. They're the best. Townsend, right? Funk brothers are the best. I mean, <laughs> oh my god, they're yes. the best. Yeah, they are absolute best. Um, and in terms of that, the fact that you guys were playing constantly, uh, what kind of uh, you know, my dad obviously, you know, I said my dad was super supportive of us. Would always you know drive us to gigs. We you know we practiced in my house. Um, any band I had, any band my brother had, we were practicing in our house. Um, yeah. The only thing we weren't allowed to do is play when my dad had his his chiropractor pr- uh, practice open um, at the you know during the day. What what kind of support did you get from your parents? I'm, I'm assuming oh. my grandparents were probably very much like non. They were they were very hands off or didn't. I guess they were glad my dad was involved with something. But I I don't. I assume based on what I remember from them, they were probably supportive, but not like hands on supportive. I remember your grandmother a little bit, but I don't remember your granddad at all. Mm. Uh, my parents were involved in terms of transportation. Okay. Absolutely. They were very, very involved. And I was always really uh, grateful that how much support they gave me. When I came home and I told them I'm not going to be a lawyer and I'm moving to California and being in the music business, they were supportive. And that was, uh, to this day, a blessing. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of transportation. We we rehearsed at Charlie's house. We rehearsed at my house. We did some rehearsal at George's house. Um, I don't recall if we were. I think we did some rehearsals at at, at your dad's place. Um, so it was a it was a communal effort. Hmm. But the parents were great because you know we weren't old enough to drive until a certain point. Yeah, and even then. If I remember, your Charlie's first car was a VW Bug. wasn't going to carry a whole lot of amps and, and guitars and stuff no. like that. Our parents were really helpful, and yeah. thank God for that. 
Yeah. I mean, I can't I can't imagine Andy, you know, moving his drums from place to place. That must have been. <laughs> oh, his dad. Oh, there was a story. Was it you who mentioned the story about Andy's dad nailing the drums? No, I think that was the me. floor at the Y. No, that might have been Glenn Taylor. He he because he, he mentioned that, it to me I when think we it talked. Was, yeah, you're right. It was Glenn. Yeah, Andy's dad was uh, was more of a kid than any of the parents. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's great to hear. I mean, that's like it's what you need, pretty much. Uh, especially that's it, it. That's you know, it's just good to to know that even because you hear all these stories about like you know people who were in bands, like their parents, you know, either weren't happy or they just were like annoyed about the stuff. But it's great to hear that. You know that they were very invested and in, and supportive of your endeavors and and your passions and stuff because you know, that's what you just want from any any parent really you know is to to be supportive yeah. of your kids. Um, and you I mean and you must have sounded you know they must have thought you were doing you know sounded good enough to to keep it going. So I do remember the uh, the battle of the bands we were in in Clifton, um, and it was a big deal because I don't know if you've heard of the Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. Yep. They opened for the Battle of the Bands. Oh, wow. And then there were, I don't know, maybe half a dozen bands. And um, we came in second. Hmm. The band that was better than us was light years better than us. <laughs> but it was a great, great experience playing in front of a large auditorium of people and being able to play loud. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that it was great. We had a that was just a, a high point in a lot yeah. of ways. I, I had an opportunity in college uh, at the University of Maryland. My I brought my band, the three guys who were living, who were going to NYU. I brought them down and we did the battle bands there. And we actually, the finals for my, the last year, the, my senior year, we, there was a, there was four bands that played and then Citizen Cope uh, actually played after everybody. So there was a lot of people there. And then we ended up, ended up winning and played in the giant uh, football stadium in front of, you know, a bunch wow. of people too. So that was cool. that was definitely an interesting experience uh, and great, you know, it's super fun. Uh, but yeah, it's always, you know, those types of shows are always really good because especially at the Battle of the Bands, you know, even when we were in, I was in high school, you had to realize that you weren't, you were trying to get everyone to listen, not just like you're, you're the people who were there to see you. Like the idea was to like get as broad of support as possible to, to, and it, it really teaches you how to play to an audience. Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Learning to play to, I still use those skills. Uh, what was it? Uh, just the other day we were talking about that. Oh, I'm a docent at a museum here, and uh, uh, it's a pretty exclusive museum up in Oxnard. Mm. Uh, it's a museum of Art Deco arts, and it's centered on this, um, the name of it is the Mullen Automotive Museum. And Peter Mullen has the world's greatest collection of French Art Deco cars from the 1930s. Interesting. Very valuable. But it includes glassware, art, sculpture, furniture, fashion. And I'm a docent there. And I was talking to some of my other docents. And we all agree we have to learn to play the room. Because the people who come to the museum, some come from France to come to this museum. Some are local. And some are there to see the cars. Some are there to see the art. And you have to learn to play the room so that you give them 
what they want. It's a good skill to know regardless of if it's not just music, but in general, how to to be able to to meet people's needs and, you know, to to get them to connect with whatever it is that you are, you know, you're doing. Um, you bet. I do want to ask, you know, I kind of know, I, I didn't know if the the evolution of the band name, which was powdered, ended up as powdered milk, like if it was as simple as my dad said it was, or if it, there was much more, because it started off, was, was the original name pure shit? Was that the original name that you guys came up with or no? We couldn't, we couldn't think of a name that, that everybody agreed upon. So someone came up with that and everybody agreed. Wow, that's great. But we're <laughs> never going to get advertisement and we're never going to get hired. We yeah. knew that. So someone came up with powdered milk and we were also frustrated at this process of coming up with a name. And you got to remember, this is during the, the age of strawberry alarm clock. Right. And, and some other crazy names. And um, we went with powdered milk and it stuck for four or five years. Yeah. So, and so yeah. So what, so the, the t- what is the time like you guys because you had mentioned because my dad he said um, that basically when you guys were going to college you were done he he kind of said like when were, everyone was going to college the band was done I guess that's not the case or I mean because you mentioned that he would come back and play some gigs what was the timeline of the band I think it ended uh, at the end of the your dad's freshman year at Maryland okay. During that freshman year, I do remember him coming home and us playing a couple of gigs. But after that, it 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 fell apart. We all everybody went different directions. Yeah. Uh, I went to school in D.C. I don't even recall where George went. Um, Andy, I think, was local. Uh, your dad was in Maryland. Charlie stayed local. Yeah, the band just yeah just fell apart. And, you know, the way he said it's like, that's what happened. Like people decided like his his uh, explanation was, is that that you guys didn't want to make it or at least he didn't want to make it a job. So like that. But that was maybe his his explanation, because that was one of the things, I, you know, with the coots, you know, mentioned the coots with Glenn Taylor, when that went from being like a just a loose jammy play every once in a while to like a cover yeah. band thing, he was like put the brakes on was like, uh, I'm going to play every once in a while, but this is not my thing. He always made it more of a, a joyful thing rather than a, a job. Ah, well, I do remember when we were in the middle of everything and we were all still in high school, we were a cover band. That's all powdered milk mm. ever was. We never did any original music that I recall. And I know that we all sat around talking about the future and we all realized how difficult it is being a professional musician and trying to make it as a rock and roll star. And I was the only one that still wanted, I, I knew I would never be a rock and roll star. I got right. over that early. I knew that wasn't going to happen. But I wanted to be in the business. I loved being in the studio. It was creative. I loved it. And I knew it was what I wanted to do. I wanted to make it a career. And uh, I think I was about the only one that that stuck with the music business in that sense. Mm, gotcha. And so now I can I can get back to the, the you had mentioned uh, fantasy records. Um, my dad always told a story 
And again, he was prone, as I've learned, he's prone to have either exaggerated or either I misheard or misunderstood these stories he told. But I remember mm. him telling it several times that you, the band, had been offered something from someone at Fantasy Records and either like a, a record deal or a, a, an offer to play or something. I don't know if that's, or maybe you were the one who said, hey, maybe there's a connection. I don't know. Um, so what was the connection beside, to the band with Fantasy Records or was there none? And I misunderstood everything he told me. There was, there was a connection. Okay. This is how it worked out. My dad grew up with Saul Zanes. Oh, wow. They grew up in Passaic together. So when I had that conversation with my dad um, about not wanting to be a lawyer and going out to be in the music business, at that point I was already going out to Fantasy Records to work during the summers and during winter vacations hmm. in the warehouse and hanging out in the studio. And... <clears throat> And when I got to Fantasy Records, I heard how Fogarty was signed. I don't know if you're familiar with this story. The the Mogwise, yeah, yeah. The, the, or the, I, I saw the document, the recent documentary that they had. It was like half doc, half them playing at Royal Albert Hall that is on, that's on Netflix. So uh, they, because he was in the army before he got signed, right? It was something like, didn't he, was he in the military before he got signed to Fantasy? I'm not sure how the timeline goes. And honestly, okay. I hear different stories because, as you know, Fogarty and Fantasy Records, yeah, they do not, yeah. they, <laughs> yeah. not good. I was there and I watched it. Hmm. And basically, John Fogarty is, um, is large and in charge. He would tell everybody in Credence exactly hmm. what to play and when to play it and how loud to play it. Interesting. He was in charge. They didn't have a manager for the longest time. Hmm. And part of the problem was, remember this is 1968, 67. Mm -hmm. Fogarty, from what I understand, worked at Fantasy Records in the mailroom and gave Saul Zaints a demo tape. Hmm. Saul listened to it, liked it, gave him some studio time from which Creedence Clearwater got signed. And this is before rock and roll became, became run by the lawyers and the managers. Right. And Fogarty was managing the band himself. Interesting. And he, and he signed a contract. I think it was a six-album contract with escalating clauses. Mm -hmm. First album comes out. It's the biggest hit, rock and roll hit that the U.S. to that point had ever put out. I still think it holds records. Yeah. And they became a worldwide phenomenon. Right. And everybody overnight became a multimillionaire. Hmm. When I first got out to Fantasy Records in the summer of 68, I drove into the... They had, they're, on, they're located on 10th and Parker in, Ber in Berkeley. And it's in a gated, little gated thing. And you drove into the gates and all you saw were brand new European cars. Because suddenly, overnight, everybody was a multimillionaire, including John Fogarty. Right. After the second album, and the second album, again, huge. Mm -hmm. Fogarty wanted to go back and renegotiate. And Saul Zanes refused. And 
Even then, Fogarty didn't have a manager and didn't have any guidance. All he had was his ego. And that is the sum of the relationship. Saul Zanes held him to the contract that he signed. And, you know, as time went on, he was able to make, you know, he refused to record for fantasy. Right. And he, he even refused to play some of the music because fantasy was making money on the publishing. And it just got worse. The relationship just right, got yeah, yeah. worse. And Saul Zanes was just holding him to his contract. And even though, um, even though uh, John Fogarty became wealthy and he's supremely talented. Don't misunderstand yeah. me. I got a huge amount of respect for John Fogarty. Uh, but John felt like he should have more than he originally signed up for. Hmm. And that's why the relationship fell apart. Gotcha. Well, but you were going to say, so just go back. I, I apologize. We, you know, it's great tangent that you took us on, but you, you, when you, I guess you had, you had learned how John had signed, got signed to fancy records. And I guess you were thinking the same thing with powdered milk. Well, I gave him a tape of, of us somewhere. There's cassettes. Cause I did give Saul, give Saul Zance a tape of powdered milk. And basically Saul right on the money. He said, I think you guys are really, really good. When you've got some original music, I want to hear a tape. Mm. We never got that far. So there was never a record offer, but the doors were open. Wow. Wow. I might not be here right now if, they had, if you guys had taken that <laughs> offer. I wish. We never found out if we had any writers. I mean, my, my dream was to be a great songwriter. Mm. I'm not. Yeah. I, 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 I worked hard at it, and I never got, got to where I, would, uh, I wanted to be. But that was my dream. And yeah. I don't think we ever found out if anyone in the group was a great songwriter. Yeah. I mean, my dad wrote, I think, a couple of tunes later on with his bluegrass band. Um, mm. Nothing, nothing. I mean, some some nice little stuff. And there's some there's one or two that are really good tunes, but like nothing that, you know, would be out there. And uh, you know, I love my dad, but he was definitely not the the songwriting type that could play anyone else's music. But um, I actually have a lyric sheet, though, of his. Uh, he wrote, I guess, either poem or lyrics when he was working at Nabisco, uh, I guess, one summer or huh. after college. And he, just how he hated his job. And just like it's uh, it's still on the um, piano at my mom's house. Um, but that's that's a that's great to know that there was that there was an like not an offer, but like that, that he was telling the truth, because I thought that was oh, yeah. really cool like that. Um, I, you know, just because, again, there was no one else to verify it. You know, and Charlie said he didn't really remember um much about it so i you know that's just it's great to hear that that was that actually happened that's really cool yeah. um yeah go ahead being oh. from new jersey uh I'm, I'm really really glad that i was raised in new jersey i think it gave me some advantages number one take care of business today mm. in new jersey there's no manana land like here right. in california everything gets put off in new jersey you, you learn to take care of business now and that put me in an advantage when I moved to the West because I was, I had that, that, that breeding mm. and it made it, and it was great. Yeah. Um, also in New Jersey, I mean, just, I love New Jersey, but <laughs> I do remember the first day that I was working full time at fantasy. The first 
morning I was in the coffee room and there were a bunch of people, people from the studio, people, you know, the, the, the staff for the studio, A&R guys, publishing guys. And all, and I was listening to this conversation and, and they said, oh, we hired a new PR guy. So I looked at him and I said, Puerto Rican? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm from New Jersey. Yeah. That's what I knew as PR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I uh, learned quick. Yeah. Um, so a couple other questions uh, to, to go back. Um, you know, you would mention concerts. Uh, my dad always talked about concerts. You know, there was, again, the obviously you weren't at this, that Led Zeppelin show, but he did talk about... Um, you know, seeing Cream at the Fillmore, seeing Sly and the Family Stone at the Fillmore when they got kicked off stage and they started playing down the aisles. Um, I remember you know, that. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's that's I, I can't I would just can't imagine how awesome that show must have been. Um, you know, obviously seeing the dead a couple times and he you know, he, he actually said that another band that he could not listen to again was Big Brother and the Holding Company. He said they were so bad when he saw them uh, probably at the Fillmore East. I, uh, yeah, I always had a little trouble with Janis Joplin's pitch. Yeah, uh, I no doubt about her commitment. Yeah, but her pitch was always to my ears a little bit. Shaky. Yeah. Um, and so that just a couple like in in uh, two two questions. Reg- well, there's gonna be three. But did you guys go to shows as as a band a lot? Did you guys go to, like together as a as a you know? Um, if I if I remember, we did. Uh, we went to the Fillmore a lot. Uh, I only wish that I bought the posters mm. and kept the posters for every time I went. But we were we were going to the Fillmore twice a month. Hmm. I mean, very often, and we'd take the bus into uh, Port into Authority. the Port Authority, and then take the, the the subway down to Fillmore. And we were fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old. We were mm-hmm. doing that, and we went to the Fillmore a lot. And I saw we saw an awful lot of bands. Yeah, awful. And we got and we got to be critical. Because we knew when it when it wasn't right, right, and we knew when it was, and to this day, the highest I have ever been <laughs> was on a good night playing on stage with powdered milk. Wow! To this that's day, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, now, there's one concert my dad always kicked himself for not going to, uh, and I don't know if you went to it. This was seeing Hendrix in Newark. Uh, I guess it was in 68 during the riots or right after the riots. And he, he had tickets to see it and he never went. I don't know if you had wow. tickets or did you not? Uh, but that's, that was, I wasn't sure if you had like, if anyone I knew or that he knew <laughs> went to the show. Um, but he said, you know, that's the one thing like, you know, he, he always thought he'd be able to have another chance to see him. Maybe it was in 69 or 70, but yeah. like, um, I guess you did, I guess you didn't, you had, you didn't go to that show. I didn't go to that show. I saw Hendrix at, at Woodstock. Well, and um, so, so the Woods, so let's talk about Woodstock. So my dad said he went to Woodstock, but didn't really go to Woodstock. Like he, they got there and then he said he got sick and didn't hear a note of music and was just shivering with a blanket on a hill. It was sick the whole time. Now, I think we were together. I think, okay. we, I, think so, I was there. So when I asked Charlie, because, yeah. you know, older now much more knowledge and understanding of what sick could have meant uh <laughs> um he did say that you guys got split up he said a bunch it of you did. went up 
and you got right. split up. But my dad said he did not hear a note of music. So wow. what was so? Ooh. Who went? What was your Woodstock experience? Who, uh, did the whole band go together? Like how did all that? Transpire? I don't think it was the whole band. I think, I think it was me and Andy, your dad, Charlie. It may have been the four of us. Hmm. There might have been a fifth person there. I don't really recall. I don't think George was there. I had to fight my parents to allow me to go. <laughs> and if you give me a second, I have something I, I got to show okay. you. Right. Give me one second. Yeah, no problem. Hi again. Hello. So Woodstock was August of 69. Mm -hmm. In 19... Oh, so one thing, I don't know if your dad even remembers this. Driving home from Woodstock, I was driving, and the three other guys were asleep because mm. it was it wasn't a whole lot of sleep, yeah. and between the weather and everything else, everybody was just dead tired. Everybody was asleep. I was driving, and I fell asleep driving. Oh shit! And I found, and I woke up bouncing through a cornfield <laughs> with the corn going like this, and oh, I just kind of eased it back onto the road and kept going. Oh, but God. in 1989, my mom calls me and she says, I think you're on the cover of Life magazine. Oh, what? Said, mom, what are you talking about? Well, it's 20 years of Woodstock and there's a picture of Woodstock and I think I see you there. Let's see. Uh, okay. I can't, you got it. Uh, your background is, uh, can you take the background off? Is that, is that possible to do? Do you know how to do that? Pat? Or you know what? Yeah. How, how about this? If you, you want to send me the picture, I'll, I'll yes. take you. I'll take a picture and send yeah. you along with that other stuff. Yeah, maybe so. maybe my dad is there with you. I don't know. I, don't, I mean, because if he's not with you, then he may have ended up somewhere on the hill, either sick or drugged this out of his is, mind. I don't know. So I, I what know. happened was, um, I do remember your dad not feeling well, mm. and I do remember I had to get up and just move around. So I walked toward the stage. Okay. This picture is taken closer to the stage. And um, I, I I think that I'm alone. Okay. I don't see anyone else here. So I, I go down to the to the the newsstand and I look at the picture. My mom's right. There's me <laughs> right in front with there's probably three thousand people in this picture. Yeah. So wow. when we got to Woodstock, all the fences were down. Yeah. Nobody was collecting tickets. We put our tickets in our back pockets, forgot about them. When I got home, I took those tickets out and I put them in a book and, you know, just to flatten yeah. them out. And 20 years later, when my mom called me, I remembered, oh, I've got my tickets. So I framed it along with the, you know, oh, the nice. cover of Life magazine, yeah. the two tickets and everything. But I do remember so much of the music. I'm really sorry that your dad didn't get to hear it my god yeah i mean some of those performances were just oh, I unreal can't even, i can't even imagine or did you and did you stay did you get any sleep or did you stay up and get to witness everything or did you you know uh, there were times when i when i i had to go to sleep yeah. i did wake up to hendrix playing star, star, star spangled banner in the morning that's awesome. and i do remember that there were acts playing at 2 a.m yeah uh it was uh never be anything like that ever again it was pretty uh, amazing yeah i can't i can't even imagine like i don't even know how you guys had food or water or anything like i just don't <laughs> know. like i 
they weren't prepared up yeah. there for the volume. So trying to find a restroom and, oh, man, it was not easy. Yeah. It was not easy. You had to have a good attitude yeah. uh, or you were going to be pretty unhappy. Yeah, I could I could see. I mean, knowing my dad later on, you know, when he I could see him not having a good time if that was the case. Like he's he was good with like going with the flow until a certain point, And then it was uh -huh. like, um, but, I, you know, that's that's great to hear that you had a great experience. And, and to know that, like, you know, again, my dad's stories, you know, just for me, again, this is the part of this having these conversations is to find out what I knew about him is was accurate. If there's anything like, you know, he you know, kind of, uh, exaggerate on, there we go. Exaggerated, uh, mm. and stuff. So when you guys went to, after you came, you went to college, the band broke up. Once you got to California, you, you were there, right? Or did you come home? Did you guys hang out ever after, after that? We would hang out uh, a couple of times after that, but that, again, that's one of my, that was my fault really. Yeah. Uh, that I didn't stay in touch with my close friends in New Jersey. I had a whole new life yeah. in California. Uh, I, I, my name, they came to me uh, the first time that I was getting a, an album credit. Mm -hmm. And they said, what do you want us to write? You know, what do you want your name to say? And I just then, uh, my growing up, my parents called me Jackson, Jack son, mm. Jackson. They, and my family called me Jackson. And uh, and when that question was posed to me, it just flashed in my head. And I said, put Jackson Schwartz. Hmm. And it's has stuck ever since. Everything I have, my license, any kind of deed I have on the house, everything is under the name Jackson now. Hmm. I never officially changed my name. So <laughs> all my friends here in California know me as Jackson. That's why I want you to call me Jack. Yeah. You're from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, Jack Jackson, whatever, um, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to me. This has been an absolute joy to connect with you, uh, to talk about my dad, to get more of his, you know, his, his childhood, his teenagers, his formative years, uh, you know, get a better understanding of, of, of that. I'm really glad to do this and I'm really glad that I could, um, Tell you some things about your dad because yeah. he was great. Thanks. I appreciate it. I really want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the podcast. Again, this was an important project for me to do to remember my father. So I hope you get a sense of what type of person and musician he was and found the stories about him and the people he played music with interesting and enjoyable. And if you haven't already listened to the other episodes of this miniseries, I hope you do. Now, whether this is your first time or you've been listening since the beginning, I really appreciate everyone checking out the podcast and would really love for you to subscribe to the show and maybe give it a review or, you know, just tell a friend about us. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter, both at DadRocksPod, as well as on Facebook by searching up Dad Rocks Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas for us, or just want to give us a shout, you can always email us at DadRocksPod at gmail.com. Now, before I go, I'd like to say something. If your dad is still alive, give him a call. 
shoot them a text. Just tell them you love them. And if you have kids, give them a hug and tell them the same thing. You never know when you won't have that opportunity again. So, I want to say thank you again for listening. And remember, dads, you rock. And dad, I love you. Thank you.